Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Scott Giacopo. Scott has been involved in animal protection since 1989, when he became an animal caregiver in Minneapolis. He soon returned to his native home in Boston, Massachusetts, where he began his career with the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. For the next 17 years, Scott worked for the MSPCA in a variety of positions including his work with the Humane Law Enforcement Department, the Media Relations Department, and the Advocacy Team. Since 2007, he has been serving as the Chief Community Animal Welfare Officer for the Washington Humane Society in Washington, D.C. He oversees the organization's community-based programs, including Animal Controlled Field Services, Humane Law Enforcement, and the Community Cats Program, which conducts free trap-neuter return services for the community cats in the District of Columbia. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you get started in this business? I actually got started working in animal shelters uh, as a, uh, I got a newsletter from my local animal shelter when I was in school in Minneapolis, and they said they needed volunteers in the mornings to walk dogs and, and care for the animals at the shelter. Um, so I figured I had time in the morning, uh, and and I started volunteering, and uh, I never looked back. Uh, after a very short period of time doing that, I realized that this was my calling, and there was nothing else really that mattered as much. So when you first started, you looked to that shelter to help sort of give you the resources and and how to start a career in animal welfare, or did you do any education at school? Not necessarily. I mean, when I when I started working there, um, I was just you know I, I built bonds with the animals and I felt for those animals that were in uh, that were living at the shelter and I wanted nothing more than to find them homes and I never really thought about it as a career. I, I was actually studying finance. My intention at the time was to take my stockbroker's license and work at one of those big firms. But uh, after a very short period of time, I, I, I just lost focus on everything but uh, animals. And when I when I came back to Massachusetts, I, I needed to be a part of it again. And I started working as a volunteer at the uh, MSPCA. And within a couple of months, I started working there. And I didn't really think about it as a as a lifelong career until uh, a year or two later when I realized that I had no intention of leaving. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with cats and how you got involved and so passionate about helping community cats? Yeah, it's actually an interesting story. I, I never really had cats growing up or um, was involved with them. And as a as a humane law enforcement officer at the Mass SPCA, we got frequent calls from a housing development in South Boston, and um, there were calls about people harming the harming the feral cats that were living in the in the development. So I went down to see what was going on, and I really didn't know too much about TNR at the time. That's when TNR was really starting to come alive in the in the city, so to speak, um, and it was really catching on. And I realized that there were two groups of people in this particular housing project, those who loved the cats and those who hated the cats, and they were always at odds. Uh, And I wanted to get a better understanding of what was happening with this whole TNR thing. So I reached out to a friend of mine, Donna Bishop, at the Alliance for Animals. Uh, She worked with me uh, on this, and she also introduced me to a woman named Bonnie Brown. They were my first real influences in TNR. Uh, so from that point on, I, I started just questioning, you know, what was happening in America with, with feral cats in, in the shelters. 
Now, as I mentioned, my first foray into this uh, field was as an animal caregiver, and we used to euthanize feral cats when they came in because they were not adoptable. And, and knowing it was wrong, but I just didn't know that we had another option. And, and at the time, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, there really weren't that many options that were, that were well-known. And through my work with Bonnie and, and, and Donna, I started realizing that, wow, there are options for these animals. And I started becoming uh, more and more involved in, in TNR. We actually uh, are planning on having Bonnie on a future episode. So it was great that you, uh, you bring her up. And I know Donna, and uh, she has done some phenomenal work over the years for Boston. So yeah. that's great that you met them. Back in the early days, that was before even the Massachusetts Animal Coalition even existed and some of the other collaborative efforts that have happened in Massachusetts over the years. Donna was amazing. I mean, she was one of the unsung heroes that, uh, that, that I knew. I mean, she was always 24 hours a day, seven days a week, she was available to help animals and, and not just help animals, but help people who were trying to help animals. And, and the same with Bonnie. I mean, I just, I just think the world of both of them. I hold them both in, in such high regard. After your time at the MSPCA, you moved down to Washington. You want to tell me a little bit about what you're doing down there? Yeah, Lisa LaFontaine was named president and CEO of uh, Washington Humane Society in 2007, and her and I served on the board of directors for the New England Federation of Humane Societies for years. And when she was uh, given this position, she uh, invited me down um, to see if this was something that I would be interested in working with her on. I mean, I had no reason whatsoever to leave the MSPCA. They were my family. I had been there for years. I loved every person there. I loved my job. I had it made. But this challenge, when I came down to Washington, D.C. with Lisa, our live release rate was only 28%. 28% of the animals were making out alive. Pit bulls were automatically euthanized on intake. The reputation of the organization in the community was really poor, and they had a, a growing feral cat pilot program started by uh, another uh, another uh, person I hold in great esteem is uh, Becky Robinson from the uh, Alley Cat Allies. Uh, she was working with the city and the organization to build a, a community cat program. Um, so when I when I agreed to come down here with Lisa, part of my, my agreement or my responsibility was that I would take that program and turn it into something worthwhile. It took us several years, uh, but I'm proud to say that we are now at a 90% live release rate. Uh, last year, we sterilized and released just under 2,500 cats, and pit bulls are very welcome in our building, as are feral cats. The Animal Control Department, uh, which I also oversee, also plays a very active role in TNR, which is, 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 is from what I know, to be very unique. I mean, they, they will go out and, and evaluate sites, uh, get numbers, talk to community residents that are about TNR. They will uh, trap the cats, bring them to the clinic. They'll re-release the cats, work with the community to provide for ongoing care. Uh, so they're part of our team. Can you expand a little bit on that? I mean, I'm assuming when you first came into your position, you didn't have animal control participating in that way. How did you impact that change? Well, we did a, you know, I did uh, did oversee the animal control uh, unit. Uh, we have the contract with the city of uh, the District of Columbia to uh, provide animal control. So we've, we've had the contract. And, you know, after talking to a lot of the officers, and one in particular who has been an officer for 32 years, um, you know, when I started talking to him about us doing TNR, he, he had a little bit of a smirk on his face. And I, I said to him, I said, gosh, Ted, what, what, are you, what are you smirking about? Is this something you disagree with or, or what? And he said... Uh, I didn't want anyone to know, but when I could, I've been sneaking cats um, into TNR. The mindset was already there. Um, yep. They just had to have permission to do it. 
You know, I mean, yes. I, and I think that's true of a lot of places where, where animal control doesn't get the credit they deserve because these people come into this job, uh, a lot of them come into this job because they lo- truly love animals and want to help and save lives. Uh, and when they're forced to do things, they, they feel powerless. They feel like it's, if they don't do this, then they'll lose their job. And it's the only job they can find where they can use their skills. And But my officers, they, they really embraced it. And we, to a point where the, the new head of my community cat program uh, is a former animal control officer that that we hired and trained and uh, when the position opened up she wanted to apply for it. So if there was somebody who say had more of a smaller rescue that worked in more of a you know less of a municipality but a smaller town and they were trying to form a relationship with their animal control officer what would your recommendations be? Well, I think the first thing is animal control, from my experience, tends to look uh, uh, nervously at smaller rescue groups. They see them posting things online saying, you know, if you don't come down today and adopt this animal, animal control will kill this animal. And, you know, they seem to be at at odds. Um, But I think that if if people went in with a more understanding and respect and giving people the benefit of the doubt, that I think that that's really the first step in developing the relationship. All too often, animal control is seen as the, the, the local dog catchers who work at the pound. Um, and those are two words that generally uh, are considered offensive to today's professional animal control officers. Now, Grant, there are some situations around the country where that attitude um, still needs to be adjusted, uh, but it's, it's growing. It's actually growing more and more. And I think that the trend today is more and more animal control are into things like this when they see programs around the country sparked by animal control that are successful. Uh, John Cicerelli in San Jose, California, um, you know, the work that I'm doing here in D.C., there are a lot of animal control departments across the country that are making a significant impact. They're spreading that message. I'm actually speaking at the National Animal Control Officers Association's National Conference in Seattle later on this year on Community Cats. Oh, that's phenomenal. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that Community Cats is, is getting in the agenda. I think that with education and with outreach and communication that every, you know, animal control officer should be able to have access to a sort of toolkit of things that they can do for community cats. Budgets are tight and we all understand that and I think there comes a level of communication, even these smaller rescue groups with animal control to get in the room and to say, okay, this is what I can do, this is what I can do. And then find out, well, what is it that we can't do and how do we fill those gaps? And I think that makes it a much better partnership. Exactly. And, you know, the local government plays a role in it, too. We we were fortunate to have a city council member who was very animal friendly. And she actually passed a law that uh, trap, neuter, and return will be the preferred method of controlling the feral cat population. So now we have the law to back us up. I understand that the Animal Welfare Society has merged now with another organization. Yeah, uh, historically there have been two humane societies, animal shelters in the city, um, and for years we were competing for donor dollars, obviously, but also, um, you know, they were more limited intake and we were full access. You know, we're open 24-7, we never turn an animal away. As our statistics grew and as our programs started expanding and, and our live release rate started growing, we started realizing that we were doing the same things. We were looking for the same goal, and finally we decided to just merge the two organizations, the Washington Animal Rescue League and the Washington Humane Society. So this past February, um, we signed a document and made it official that we were one organization. And now the pooled resources that we get to turn to are are phenomenal for all of our programs. Um, They had a low-cost medical center providing low-cost vet care 
care to owned pets. Um, they did a little bit of TNR, but you know, when people came to them looking for TNR services, they would have to send them across town to us because we have a we have a, a, a low cost spay neuter clinic in Southeast DC that that is all we all we do is spay neuter. Um, so when we had, like, we have our Pets for Life program, and a lot of those people are in need of medical care, uh, we couldn't perform those procedures at our clinic because we were primarily spay neuter. So we'd have to send them to uh, the Washington Animal Rescue League. And now, as one, we don't have to send them anywhere. We do it. It's things like that that really make an impact in the community, that they'll, the community will see right away that a, a difference has come. The time has come for us to just pool resources and be one-stop shopping. If, if there's an animal question in D.C., you just call one number and you'll get the answer. And now, let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide-and-seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night, with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash reveal wild. So over the years after you've done all this, the trap neuter turn and the low-cost stay neuter for owned cats, I assume you've seen a drop in the number of intakes and the drop in the number of kittens that you've taken in. Are you now assisting communities outside of your main service area to supply more kittens and cats? How is that balance happening in your area? Well, we have it. We 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 have seen a a, a pretty decent uh, decrease. Uh, for instance, we are targeting our TNR efforts right now uh, to coincide with our Pets for Life program. So there's a, a section of of, of DC that is. Um, more at risk, um, more in need of, of services. Our Pets for Life team is in there and our Community Cats team is in there. And in the past year, we've seen a 38% drop in kitten intake. So that's a pretty darn good number. Across yeah. the board, we're, we're seeing some lower numbers. We're still taking in, you know, we're still taking in above 5,000 cats a year uh, overall throughout the city. And and I know uh, the, the trend in the Northeast is that fewer and fewer animals are coming into the shelter. So we're hoping that that trend continues to move south. Uh, we are transporting some, uh, obviously not as many as we would like, uh, but we do have a, a very active transport and uh, rescue partner uh, program. That's great. I mean, I, one thing I find it's really nice if you have like a central hub that you start and then you just keep sort of your rings of support just keep getting wider and wider as the needs of the community ask you to participate farther afield, so to speak, because I find in some communities you can almost get like at a maintenance level and that you're just trying to maintain a certain level of continuous spay and neuter. But then beyond you get into sort of newer territories, either that or training, you know, new people to help in farther reaching areas. In the future, as you sort of look down the road in the next five to ten years for community cats, what's the picture for you? Well, one of the one of the things we noticed was we were having an issue with new cats showing up in our colonies uh, where, that were that had been managed for a while. And what we what we found was that in D.C., if you live in subsidized housing, you can't have pets. But a lot of people were getting cats, and when they were when they were caught or when they were relocated, the family was relocated. They looked outside, saw the community cats out there as being well cared for and, and surviving, so they would put their cats out there. Um, so we, we, we recognized a, an increase in abandonment, so we're addressing that. Again, luckily, we have the con not only do we have the contract 
for animal control, but we also do all of the cruelty investigations in the city. Uh, so we had a, a, a large internal meeting uh, with all the relevant parties, and we're coming up with a strategy to work with the community residents on uh, on abandonment issues. And we, on one end, we're doing that, and on the other end, we're working with uh, DC Housing Authority to allow pets. Um, so what what came from that is a, a new program sprung, um, a pets and housing program, which we're 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 focusing some uh, some of our resources on now to allow people in subsidized housing to own pets. I do see in the future the, 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 the outdoor cat population diminishing, but to an extent, I, I think that a lot of people still believe that cats belong outside uh, and that they're better off outside. Even owned pets indoor, outdoor. Now, I have several cats living with me. None of them go outdoors, um, but there are a large population that thinks it's cruel to keep them indoors. So there's an educational component we need to look at in that regard, but also to make sure that those animals are sterilized. So, you know, when we talk about community cats, um, I like the phrase community cats better than the traditional feral cat management because community cats embraces any any cat that goes outside, whether he's owned or not, whether or not he's feral or not. Um, it embraces everybody, every cat that's out there in the community, and they should all be sterilized. I agree 100% with you. <laughs> so what I want to touch upon fostering because that word is you are a good foster home of feral kittens. Um, it depends on your definition of a good foster home. If you mean um, a good by they never leave, uh, then yes, I'm a great foster home. I, you know, it's funny. I, I talk to I talk to coworkers and I talk to um, volunteers about proper ways to deferralize is a, a term I coined um, to how to deferralize kittens, and we're really successful, really successful. But gosh, when I get my hands on those feral kittens, I just can't. I just can't. I deferralize them and they stay with me forever. I have right now. I have four two-year-olds uh, that are brothers. Um, I, I refer to them as the gang of four. They're little thugs running around my house, wreaking havoc. But I love them so much. They're for the most part friendly, and they they still hide from strangers. But they're they're, they're okay. I just recently brought two in um, from the same father who I've been trying to trap for. I want to go say going on two years. I have not been successful in catching the father. I've caught three mothers and sterilized them. And we've gone through a few litters of kittens, all of which um, the the only ones that I worked with uh, I've kept. Now these two, I'm I'm committed to getting them into new homes. We will see, huh? Yeah, we will see. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my phrase with the feral kittens when I was fostering feral kittens actively is I was like, all they need is a good fluff and fold. That's all they need. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, because I, I find sometimes people are very scared about fostering feral kittens. I feel like that there's a real, I don't know, there's some, some block there that, oh, if they're feral, I don't want to foster them. And I find it very rewarding. And it sounds like you do too. And I think that looking down that road, you know, foster homes for feral kittens is going to be where it's at for foster care. Yeah, we have a pretty good network right now that we work with. In fact, one of the uh, one of the best we have, in my opinion anyway, uh, took the other two because there were four in this litter that we have. And she took the other two and I'm holding on to these two to see see if I can actually do it. But yeah, I agree. It's 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 becoming more and more important. And I don't I don't know what the the hesitation is. Is you know people who are used to cats being your average house cats and they're you know climbing on you and playing and, and all that, that's what they expect out of a kitten. But when you get these little hissy pops that, you know, hiss at you and, 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 you know, might even spit a little bit, people get afraid of them until they see that. You can just reach in, grab them, and pull them up to your chest and tell them to stop it. 
<laughs> but I, I love the look on their face when it's like they're, they're, it's like they've been defeated. It's like they hiss at you and they they hold a paw up or something, and you just grab them and give them a big old hug and kiss, and then they look at you like, oh man, that didn't work, you know? Uh, <laughs> I know. You, you broke their little soul, you know, their little spirit. Right, or they'll turn their head away and pretend like this isn't happening. This is just exactly. not happening. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then but you yeah. give them food, and they've forgotten everything, you know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I find it. I, I find it. As you say, it's quite hysterical, and I think it's great. And if anyone out there is interested in taking on the challenge of fostering feral kittens, I highly recommend you know reaching out to your local organization and volunteering your services. It, there's great resources online about you know how to socialize feral kittens. But if there were people interested in maybe finding out from your organization, is there anything any sources that you could refer people to? We we generally um, this. So much information out there. We generally refer people to the Alley Cat Allies for information on that. Um, they have some good good resources. Uh, we actually hold workshops for our foster care uh, families uh, where it's direct hands on. I mean, you will uh, you come to the workshop and you may very well end up walking out of there with a feral kitten to, to foster. But yeah, those are the those are that that's basically what we do. There's no need to reinvent the wheel if it's already out there and effective. There a way for people to find you if they're interested in and finding out more about your work? Yeah, uh, I'm, you know, certainly uh, I accept, you know, you can email me, a uh, really easy email at scott at washhumane.org. And your website, the organization's website is? Uh, washhumane.org, and that's W-A-S-H-H-U-M-A-N-E dot O-R-G. Scott, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with our listeners today? Any sage advice, something you'd want to share with somebody, say, who's just starting out in animal welfare today? You know, you have 20-plus years of experience. What, what piece of advice would you give somebody who's brand new and starting out today? The first thing I would say is don't ever get discouraged and give up. You know, I have seen in the 20 years, 20 plus years that I've been doing this, I have seen so many great progressions in this industry. Um, sometimes you just have to sit back and watch it happen and, and not think that it's going to happen overnight. There are people out there who disagree that cats should be um, TNR. Uh, there are people out there that will, I'm sure, post, um, you know, bad comments on any webpage or any news article. That's They're out there and don't be discouraged by them. Every single cat matters. Every single cat is an individual and has the has the right to life uh, and should not be euthanized just because they don't have what they call a home. You know, one of the one of the things that we've struggled with is a lot of these cats now are social. They we're not going to show well in a shelter, but they aren't as feral. And a lot of people have have difficulties putting them back in, saying that we're just contributing to the homeless pet population. These community cats are not homeless. They have people who love them. They have people who might not even know each other, and, and the cat could run from one house to the next, getting two breakfasts, two lunches, and two dinners every night of his life. They're loved, they're cared for, and, and they, they have the right to be out there. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining me on the show, and I look forward to having you back again. We might do a show just on your success with those foster kittens of yours. <laughs> well, I might need to bring in someone else for that, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Stacey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats Podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone. Wow.